Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of this channel. And today we'll be hearing from folklorist, ethnographer, and oral historian Luisa del Giudice about the collection of essays that she has edited and which has just been published. It's called On Second Thought, Learned Women Reflect on Profession, Community, and Purpose. Luisa del Giudice, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, Louisa, I wonder if you could start by telling us all a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I live in Los Angeles. I'm an independent scholar at the moment, although I used to teach at UCLA, Italian folklore in the Italian department and folklore and mythology, and then uh, became the founder director of the Italian Oral History Institute. Uh, I was born in Italy, raised in Canada, and have been uh, in Los Angeles since 1981. So here I am. And, uh- and I've done Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to folklore? Because it's not the most obvious discipline to stumble across. No, it's not. And I think I came through it uh, through literature, as many have. I came to Los Angeles to UCLA to do a PhD in medieval and Renaissance Italian literature and then discovered, because on this campus we have uh, had a great uh, folklore program and an ethnomusicology department. And uh, I was assigned through the Medieval and Renaissance Center to work with an Irish ballad scholar, uh, Wilgus, D.K. Wilgus. And there learned, worked on his uh, Irish ballad collection, and then uh, decided, realized that this could be a serious topic of study. And went to my director, and he didn't think so. But what I did was I rearranged my committee and, uh, you know, um, audited courses, self-taught in folklore, and proceeded to do a dissertation on a ballad, a traditional ballad in Italy. Did fieldwork in northern Italy, uh, did fieldwork in in the diaspora as well, and produced uh, recordings and uh, and a book called Cecilia. Uh, the ballad was called Cecilia. And that's how I got started. And I became very uh, entranced uh, by fieldwork, love to be out in the field, talking to people, and also learning more about, uh, for the first time, in a sustained way, about my own Italian background. Uh, You know, oral culture, peasant Italian background. And so it brought me back to... um, to my own experience of Italian culture, not through the great literary giants of Dante, Boccaccio, and Petrarch, but um, songs, songs, celebration, ritual, uh, food practices, all of those things. It changed my life. <laughs> and um, I wonder if you can tell us um, a little bit about uh, how On Second Thought came about, because it's quite different to 
the works you've published before. And I, you're a very extensively published scholar. Um, I jump around. I like new topics. I get bored, I suppose. But this one actually um, is very different for me. It uh, goes back to about 2006, when I was in the midst of a professional crisis. Uh, I had um, founded and directed for about a decade the Italian Oral History Institute and realized that I could not uh, carry this nonprofit on my own, sh pretty much own shoulders. And uh, it was not taken, um, it was not taken on as an institute by uh, universities. And so I needed to close it. It was too much for me. And I went into a, a crisis mode. Uh, I didn't know what I was to do. It wasn't a traditional academic. I wasn't within an academic setting teaching as I had you know, hope to be. And so I started to really examine my life as a scholar, as an ethnographer, and what was I to do now? I had taught within an academy. I had done public education, public sector uh, festivals and conferences and all that sort of thing. But what was I to do now? I uh, started to, I became sort of a retreat junkie. I needed to stop and start examining uh, deeper issues in my life um, and um, got into spiritual direction. And spiritual direction is all about discerning your path, your journey in life. Uh, I've gone to Zen sanghas and monasteries and women's retreats and all that sort of thing. So I started to reflect and write about this transition and about how I was going to practice uh, ethnography going forward. And what I decided was that it needed to change in a radical way. I'd always been very interested in peace and social justice. I'd been interested in women, um, in hunger, in migration, in uh, refugees, all that sort of thing. And so I wrote and gave my first talk from an I-narrative perspective in Derry, Ireland. And it was a very scary thing because here I was exposing myself personally uh, to in an academic setting, uh, crossing many boundaries. And should I be doing this? And was I... Was it dangerous? You know, academics are not so uh, inviting uh, about that kind of discourse. But I realized that it had hit a nerve with a lot of people, especially women. And so from there, I just, and in the meantime, I'd been doing other work with women's groups. I decided that one of my social action projects would be getting women to start reflecting as I had done. Uh, about the intersections of culture and family and spiritual or faith tradition, how they had decided to do what they did in life uh, as professional women. And these were all women that I personally chose, who I knew to be women of head and heart, and to similarly, uh, you know, have the, the courage to speak and write about it and to be published. Not everyone said yes. But many of them did say yes. And among these were four, four of us are folklorists. So that's how it came to be. Out of curiosity, do you know why the people who didn't say yes uh, 
said why they why they do you know why they said no I mean what did they not feel that they were women of head and heart or I can only surmise that they didn't want to risk um exposing themselves that within the academy somehow when a woman starts talking in the first person about uh, you know about their lives and their personal lives as they intersect their professional lives that uh, this is not this is not okay and um not encouraged and it's not serious and it's not uh, scholarly mm-hmm. even now as as i think i had told you having published this collection uh there are academic settings and uh, uh journals that don't consider this scholarly and you know it's memoir but it's not scholarly so it it's a problem and the whole point is to somehow change the paradigm from within and mm-hmm. so it's um it's not going to be easy doing that before we talk more about the book can you tell us a little bit about that paper that you gave in Derry and the co- the content of that because that was really a springboard and obviously yeah. a deeply kind of like self-searching it, process it was it was and it was really uh, it was called ethnography and spiritual direction varieties of listening and i was asking myself how one listens as an ethnographer an oral historian of course that's the the main thing we are listening we are recording we are documenting how are we listening and then spiritual direction is all about listening as well to listening to oneself one's heart how do those things intersect and i realized that it was really uh, a continuation of the same practice it's all about deep listening and i had spent my entire life doing that ever since i was a child lived in a um in Italian home in Toronto um you know cultures in contact i was an immigrant at a very young age and there was a sort of um i lived in two worlds and so i was always listening very carefully uh the, to the meaning of words and you know how to negotiate the two worlds that i lived in and so it was all about listening and um I think that as an ethnographer I was always very attentive to that as well listening for uh expressions of longing of um uh cultural myths uh, you know gastronomic utopias and it practices of welcoming strangers and feeding the poor very concerned about listening to the society around us which is why I you know had left literary studies which was you know examining texts that wasn't enough for me i wanted to know about life and i listened a lot to my own cultural past uh knowing myself ethnographically before i could really listen to others and it, literally i it was listening to folk songs that opened my inner ear uh it was through folk songs and collecting them that i was able to hear a, a cultural past our own past and that's how it got started really and um uh i interested in the ancestors especially so there is a poem i would love to read to you uh just one ch- one um oh yes one please yes of it which ca- really captures what i have um been involved with it's a poem by senegalese poet and storyteller birago diop and i had uh been exposed to this through bill viola's 
film, uh, Three Women, and it starts this way. It says, the dead are not dead. The dead are never gone. They are in the shadows. The dead are not in earth. They're in the rustling tree, the groaning wood, water that runs, water that sleeps. They're in the hut, in the crown, in the crowd. The dead are never dead. So I've been concerned about discovering and learning about these ancestors and um, ancestral time. How do we bring forth uh, our ancestors and their knowing and their culture and their whatever they have to pass on to us? What do we want from them when we're searching this out? And what do they want from us? And so I've been carrying this burden uh, for a long time, for decades, that somehow I had this debt and this responsibility to do that. Um, do you think that's been influenced by the fact that you were you were you moved from your native land quite y- very young to Toronto? So uh, it's Toronto, right? Yes, Toronto. Absolutely, I think um, you know migration isn't always caused by traumatic events, but in our case, it was. And after the Second World War, uh, you know, one could really not make ends meet. Uh, in this was just between Rome and Naples, a place called Terracina. And my father, who came from a peasant family that had fields, uh, you know, did everything he could. He was a fisherman by night and a farmer by day and realized that he just had to get out. And so he had a brother in Toronto, uh, which is where, you know, chain migration, that's where he went. He went a year ahead of us. And um, then my mother, who had never even traveled 100 kilometers to Rome from her town, took the three daughters Three, uh, I was four months old, and there was a four-year-old and, and a nine-year-old alone to Naples, embarked, went to Halifax, got off the train, did, you know, in another three-day travel by train to Toronto. I, the, when I think about that courage, uh, it's just, it's, it's stunning. And so we grew up um, in, as I said, this bilingual, bicultural, by a chronologic world, because we really felt that we were bridging generations, you know, centuries. We lived a very kind of archaic life at home, and then we were in the 20th century. So, uh, yeah, the culture, just trying to figure all this out, you know, listening for uh, your own culture, trying to, to, uh, to mend broken links, information, knowledge, knowledge that the people who had emigrated didn't even have. So when I started listening to folk songs, I had to go further. It wasn't enough to do field research. I had to learn more than they knew. I had to reconstruct the history of a people without history, as they've often been called, you know. So that's what I ended up doing uh, as conscientiously as I could. Um, that's, That's how it happened. Great. Now, you begin your introduction to the book uh, on Second Thought, this collection of essays, um, uh, with a sentence, the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of wisdom may appear dichotomous, divided between the communities of scholars known as the Academy and those searching for existential truths in myriad spiritual and faith traditions. Is, is that kind of like dichotomy something that's been very kind of present in your career to date? Well, you know, uh, I don't think think 
Well, I think one is conscious of keeping them separate. So when you want to bridge these topics, you're told, no, that really is not something we talk about in the academy. Go across the street to the uh, the uh, the Episcopal Church. I go to an Episcopal Church across the street, which has the chaplaincy to UCLA. And literally, it's across the street, Hillgard Avenue. And they are... An, People of faith who are also academics are very aware of needing to keep these worlds separate. And it was only after reading Carol Flinders uh, at the root of this longing. It was a book about reconciling her feminist uh, longing and her Buddhist practice that I, you know, the light went off and I thought, oh, my goodness, I really need to integrate these two parts of my life. I cannot lead this schizophrenic life. Uh, and I got to stop um, being this fragmented self. And I think we do that normally as we get older, uh, uh, you know, in life review and uh, more mature that, you know, that we, we are, we need to be integrated people. And that, so that's how, uh, the life of spiritual searching, because I think we all need to figure out what it is that we're doing with our lives. What is our deeper purpose? How do what we believe in who we are and our talents and skills uh, um, are applied uh, in life? You know, how do they serve others? And then uh, the our academic knowledge, you know, that these things are not separate. And I've, I think snaking all through my academic work, even before I was aware of this uh, dichotomy, um, was a concern uh, for uh, the good, doing good, a common ground, justice, peace. Uh, you know, all of the topics that I that attracted me were, you know, St. Joseph's Table, uh, an altered tradition that literally feeds the poor and welcomes the strangers. So it's always been there. And gastronomic utopias, my our own experience of hunger, you know, cultural trauma um, of Italians during the war years. You know, how is that? And then how do you learn about that and serve others, not necessarily only Italians, but across many boundaries? So, yeah. So you gathered together this collection, I think, of uh, 13 essays, right? Yes. Um, including your own. Mm -hmm. And you said you contacted various uh, wise women. Mm -hmm. um, how did, where, where did these women come from? What, what kind of made them yeah. stand out to you as, as the people to contact? And also, why, why just women? Why just women? Uh, okay. Um, well, I think that one of the kind of the last frontiers for me to apply my uh, knowledge and my social action interest uh, and all of what I am and what I do is that I want to apply it to women and girls issues that this really is um, the unfinished business. And I'm sensing an urgency to that. I've given my e efforts to so many other things, but Really, uh, I um, especially today when we have such a misogynistic, patriarchal regime in place that it's no longer optional, that we must do whatever we can to change this. And um, so that's why it's only women. I'm hoping others may benefit from it too, but uh, this is for women, women scholars, women who are learned women uh, who 
you know, do research, give papers, organize uh, conferences, all of the work that that uh, learned women do. And they come from many different fields. We have uh, we have uh, doctors, psychologists, uh, Zen Buddhist abbots, uh, deacons, public health. Uh, folklorists, um, uh, English professors, just a variety of women from different walks of life, artists, uh, federal officers that work with refugees. Um, and so uh, I think one will be surprised and interested and partly also entertained by these stories, these travel tales by women who are all in um, sort of a second uh, phase of life. And just naturally reviewing their lives in any case. So. Um, did you know all of them personally when you approached them? I knew all but two personally. And uh, two of the uh, contributors asked if they could uh, invite a friend of theirs who they thought would be appropriate for the, uh, for the volume. So that's how two other women uh, got included enfolded into this project but i'm i'm thrilled that they that they did um it was really kind of word of mouth and you know not the usual right. call what did you actually say to them <laughs> what did you say to them that you wanted a kind of life reflection of academic how their disparate parts of their lives came together did you give them any kind of specific instructions oh i certainly did um i asked them to reflect on their uh, professional lives and how uh, their family and any kind of a cultural or faith tradition had influenced and intersected uh, their professions. To think deeply about how that happened and what they felt their purpose uh, beyond sort of uh, their work life, uh, their um, their life work. Uh, came to be formed. And, and, uh, and I think this is the interesting thing that m some of the women, I also asked them to reflect on the process after they had finished. These are women who are used to analyzing and being critical and assembling the information and examining it all, but they had not applied, not all of them had applied this level of reflection, self-reflection to their own lives. And they were surprised by what they found. Um, you know, that they had never put together this coherent narrative and made some discoveries that were quite interesting to them. So I think it is uh, an invitation I would love to extend to to anyone. And it's something you have to do over and over and over again, that this discernment, discernment is sort of a technical term in sort of uh, Christian tradition, that it is normally a discernment of, of vocation uh, to a priesthood or something like that. And I've been involved in those committees, helping others discern their call. But it is a, a wonderful exercise. Uh, I think the Quakers have this as part of their tradition to stop and reflect with others about, um, you know, what, what their deepest purpose is and what, how to negotiate the next fork in the road, that we should all be doing this and encouraging others, even at a younger age, to be doing this. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful exercise. And as the essays started coming back to you, were you able to discern themes or uh, things in common or things that surprised you? Yes, I had to sort of do that in order to write the introduction. And there were many uh, themes that um, 
that I noted. One of them that is found in at least three of the different essays is this being between and betwixt, sort of walking between the worlds, as Sabina Maliocco speaks about it, both uh, in her case as a, pa- a pagan practitioner, literally walking between the spiritual and the here and now, uh, sort of a shamanistic Germany, journeys, and that this is the mark of a healer. They go out, they come back, they bring back their knowledge. In Charlene Villasenor Black's instance, she is um, a Chicana art historian, and she talks about um, Nepantla, this concept in pre-Columbian uh, societies of um, of also being, oh, how did she define it? I'm not exactly sure how she defined it, but she speaks about this being between, between cultures and races, and sort of a, the coyote figure who um can negotiate, be like almost like a trickster, being in many places at the same time and um, bridging. And I, too, as a public and academic folklorist, as a uh, someone who works in the um, in traditional places and in other sorts of educational settings, uh, being a mediator, being on the margins, and how that can be a bridging role and a place of uh, power where you can speak as others cannot and you can bridge communities and uh, and groups, you know, and that, that it is a place of creativity and innovation and looking over walls and, you know, trying to be in um, a mediator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And many women live there. Also- Sorry, I didn't mean you- to catch that. Many women live those lives, finding a way to uh, do what they need to do, often with challenges that are family challenges. You know, they have families, they are caregivers, they are mothers, they are single mothers, they are caregivers. How do we do all of this, live in that world and not be eaten alive by it while staying, uh, you know, active as professionals? That this is, this is a challenge we all have as women, uh, you know, for biological reasons, for cultural reasons, because we are the ones who do a lot of the social and emotional work. And so how do we do that? You know? Right. And it seems that whilst it's a very creative and productive place, this betwixt and betweenism, it's, it's also not necessarily a place that's tremendously comfortable to inhabit. No, it's not. Uh, until you uh, examine it and you make it work for you, and you realize, as I finally have, I've embraced this role as an independent scholar. So if someone were to offer me an institution today, I don't know that I would want it because I can sort of rant and rave as others who are within institutions perhaps cannot. And it allows you the freedom uh, to of mobility, of thought, of expression and doing things in, in new ways. And uh, I've kind of like that now, you know. That's a great call to arms. Um, <laughs> what other themes did you find emerging? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, 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 the caregiving roles, uh, the, uh, what a burden that is. One of the um, contributors, who's an artist and an, uh, teaches art as well, Karen Guanchone, I think offered one of the most poignant um, essays. And she 
who's a great free spirit and also a first generation scholar, you know, as many of us are, uh, first in their family to go to college. And she was saddled for cultural reasons because she was the daughter with a mother who was going through dementia. And just she felt that she was in, under house arrest and that this was a source of shame for her. She had retreated from her professional life and and just dying, really. And how could she continue to fly? And that's the, uh, oh dear, sorry. And that is the uh, title of her talk. It's uh, Standing Still While Flying, you know, as a caregiver. And, you know, the, she was the Italian daughter who was expected to do all of that, you know, and, and not complain about it, but uh, how hard that was uh, to do. And I think, and, and not speaking about caregiving in, you know, uh, dulcet tones and all of the stuff that goes along with um, accepting your fate and being gracious about it. Yeah. Um, so there are 13 essays altogether and four are by um, people who we can identify as folklorists, yes. including yourself. Did you arrange the essays in any particular order? I don't know that I did. I sort of grouped them <laughs> uh, around maybe uh, things that were, that I felt people had in common. Um, for, uh, I'll tell you the folklorists that are in the essays, in the volume, and what they contributed. We have Christine Zinni, who is an American studies um, um, professor of indigenous studies, food culture, and museum studies. She's an oral historian, and she, sat, uh, she straddles uh, ethnic groups. Uh, she is Italian. She does indigenous studies and she's worked with Polish uh, folklore as well. And she talks about uh, having uh, about becoming storied um, and what she has learned from her indigenous studies, the um, respect for the land and being rooted in the land and connecting this environmental sense to her own Italian family's uh, keeping of a garden uh, that, you know, that that was a, a, a trait d'union. And Sabina Maliocco talks about uh, walking between the worlds. She is a neo-pagan scholar, as you know, um, and uh, has done work in uh, in the new, you know, among the pagan community and in Italian and Mediterranean cultures. Mary Ellen Brown, who is a professor emerita of folklore and um, Scottish and English balladry. And her talk is about predestination and how the humus of her family life uh, among uh, sort of churched and literate people determined how she and why she kind of uh, was uh, drawn to uh, Scottish uh, scholars of the word, you know, in the sung word. And then there's me. My book is called Making Dead Bones Sing. Do you want to tell us about your essay? Can you, is there an excerpt from it that you would like to read or just um, uh, tell us, walk us through it? Walk you through it. Sorry, I put you on the spot there. <laughs> I didn't prepare uh, you no, for that. No, it's really about, um, as I was <laughs> saying earlier, uh, em embodying ancestors, bringing these dead bones to life again. How do we embody, how do we bring the what we need and what we resonate with into the into our present and into the future? How do we become a link in that chain? Uh, and, and so I examine why I spent so much time 
uh, examining my own family and family's culture of uh, Italian peasant and oral culture, which is what I've devoted my life to, oral history and oral culture, uh, knitting that all back together. And what was I learning about it? Um, And it's always been a very personal endeavor. You know, I really wanted to understand what and why, what we believed, what we practiced, why we did that, uh, why we thought the way we thought. And um, so really bringing that to life again uh, and in my own life and how I transmit transmit that both for my uh, cohort, who I also think have been cut off from their own cultural background. And it seems such a pity because most of the Italians who are here, who certainly in Toronto, came from the same background I did. And all they were being offered was literate culture. It seemed ridiculous. Uh, And so this became my own personal mission, that this is the kind of culture and uh, cultural history and oral history that I would devote my life to because no one else or very few others were doing this. And this is essential knowledge uh, if we were to really understand who we were and continue to be in many ways. And so that's the activist part that, you know, it's very hard to find a place to practice and to disseminate uh, knowledge about oral culture and oral history. So I had to create my own institute to do that. And um, why it talks about why I think that is so essential, uh, why it's so important. And, um, and I uh, really didn't think it was enough to do it in an academic setting that we really, if this was important information, we had to find a way to speak to not just, you know, four scholars in the room or a few students, but publicly. And so I've always been keen about um, festivals, public programming, um, being able to speak so all could understand uh, forms of presentation that would actually uh, attract a wider audience. And so that's what I spent my life doing. But then, you know, this, um, but turning it also to uh, strongly issues of social justice. And it's a social justice to give those groups some equity, you know, to give them a place at the table of culture and learning. And uh, very hard to find any space to do that. In right, fact, right, I had to close right, the right. institute. I closed it because I couldn't do it anymore. So there you go. Yeah, no, that was a, a depressing thing to have to read about, but obviously it led to other things. I think I uh, learned skills that I would never have had to develop had I stayed, you know, uh, again, like learning to speak to um, the public, learning to present in a way that, and learning to speak in a way that is not jargony, you know, that is accessible. There you have mm-hmm. it. And actually, that's one thing I noted in the book that the, and you refer to the um, contributions as talks, although they're actually essays because they're written in this very kind of um, reader friendly manner. Then it's not acad- academic prose yes. as one knows it. I actually, that was one of the things I asked them to avoid avoid jargon. Let this be an enjoyable, pleasurable, way of writing that is not contrived, is not bookish, 
Um, you know, uh, there's an expression in my own di- dialect that's called, that says, uh, speak as your mother made you. And it is, you know, speak from learned experience in an accessible way, not in a bookish way. So I really take that to heart. It's an important uh, skill and it's important to do in life. And I think you even mentioned that some of them, you had some of the contributors, you had to um, cajole them into loosening up a little bit more. Is that right? Yes, to to be more personal, actually. Uh, some of the more traditional scholars were uh, were very bookish and it was the nature of their contribution. But I wanted to hear more about them, how they related to the scholarship that they were involved with. Why was it attractive to them? Why did they do this? I mean, one makes choices in life about what to devote one's energies and skills to. It's got, it always has a personal uh, reason for being. So we need to out that. We need to examine it and, and maybe redirect it, you know, when we really do um, start digging deeply. Um, think about what direction it should go. I've noticed some of the other themes that you have kind of identified as emerging from this, these contributions include a professional marginal, marginalization and economic penury. Uh-huh. Which, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know, that's one of my sore spots uh, personally, uh, because I've always been, uh, in fact, I often wondered, did I actually have a career if most of what I did was not remunerated? I was a visiting professor for years, you know, one or two courses a year. Then I did some contract work uh, as an independent scholar. You know, it's just like bits and pieces. And there's no way anyone could have survived on, you know, what I was earning. Luckily, I have a, uh, a spouse who is a tenured faculty. But thinking about all the ways we are marginalized, not encouraged, not supported, and all of the potential, all of the wonderful potential that is never developed because we do not understand the particular and special uh, circumstances of women academics and women professionals. And there are very few workplaces that will adapt and uh, be flexible about what is needed. Um, and there are many uh, in in this volume who also speak about that. One of them, uh, Christine Zinni, talks about because she had decided to take care of her dying um, mother, uh, how she had had to forego a traditional um, academic path, and she got back to it, and you know, adjuncting and this and that, and all the different ways we have to kind of hang on at the margins. Uh, because uh, that's, you know, that's the lot we've been given. We are the caretakers in many instances or cannot have a traditional um, academic path for so many different reasons. Um, So, you know, having children, for me, it was having children that uh, I was told that I, you know, had had to do it now or never. And that's what I did and put the... um, the professional on hold. And then when I got back to uh, applying for jobs, there weren't any there. It was, it was gone. And so, you know, I wasn't going to travel, travel out of state or across the country uh, if I was to do this. And my husband is a tenured professor. I wasn't going to ask him. So it's, it's very complicated in every single 
uh, situation differently, but similarly as well. Yeah, I like I like what you've written here. I think it's on the uh, page twenty three. It's in talking about what you're finding in the contributions. You're, we encounter masters of bricolage and diverse resources who find meaning in lonely, marginalized places who struggle to weave together disparate aspects of life to make them meaningful. I thought that was really beautifully Thank put. Um, and it's, uh, it's um, I think it gives hope to other people in, in uh, similar situations. And there are, goodness knows, there are many of them and ever more, since more and more staff seem to be taken on as adjuncts as opposed to That's tenured right. or with any possibility That's of right. it. That's yes. right. Um, mm-hmm. In my own case, I literally behaved as though I were a full-time academic just to stay alive. I went to American Folklore Society meetings. I went to International Ballad Commission meetings uh, to uh, hyperproductive, actually, but always struggling and determined that this would not, you know, motherhood and all the normal things we need to do was not going to kill me. That you, you, you piece it together how best you can, avoiding the, you know, going around the obstacles, becoming creative. You have to work like a dog. You become exhausted, you know, but you, I just have a, a very strong will and determination and, and I've also had help uh, and, 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 you know, um, I've somehow gotten through it. I think that's an act of faith in itself, that, that drive to be productive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's saying that there's a meaning behind this productiveness. There's a reason for doing this, which I think is... Well, if, had um, I not... Can be... Yeah, had I not uh, absolutely believed in the material and in the reasons for pursuing and, uh, you know, diffusing it, I don't know that I would have had maybe that, that kind of drive. But this... This was my life, my culture, my family. It wasn't just a, a, a topic of, in, you know, casual interest. It was life and our history. So I was determined to to bring this forward and find any way possible to do what I had to do. And I think for many, it's the same. Did any of the contributors express any regret over some of the paths they've taken? <laughs> uh, I, only one contributor regretted... Uh, perhaps having written her paper, which I was sorry to hear, but I think it was just a reflection of insecurity about, about her contribution, uh, about her own worth. And I was sad to hear that and had to encourage her to keep going, that this was a very valuable piece as well. So uh, regrets about what they had done professionally, you mean? I don't think so. Uh, well, in any, it could be in any area. Since they, I mean, they're looking at their professional and personal lives and spiritual lives uh-huh. altogether. Yeah. No. Um, no. There. I didn't. I didn't perceive any regret. Um, not regrets. No. Can't say. And was there anything that particularly surprised you in any of the contributions, well, or or? Made you stand back or, or shocked you? Well, one of the, one of the contributions that I think is a very strong one is Grace Shearson, who is a Zen abbess. And she, she actually trains, uh, priests, women priests especially, but priests in general. And she's a psychologist. Uh, and she, uh, speaks about, uh, finding herself in a, a position of authority and looking within the Zen tradition and where were the women? 
she actually had to go back and do research in the literature and bring forth those Zen foremothers so that she could understand how she was to be um, inhabiting that position. And she was successful. Uh, she's written a couple of books about this, Grace Shearson, and in finding these women and what they had to do and, 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 and what they said and what they wrote and how they lived as Zen um, women. But she was able to introduce a new chant including women, uh, women in the genealogy, uh, in Soto Zen in, in America. So this was like, you know, this is a real accomplishment, I would say. Yeah. Right. Now all of the contributors have some sense of spiritual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spirituality, but it manifests in different ways. Um, uh, we've, you've got, a. um, Neo-paganism, mm -hmm. got Zen, Zen Buddhism, spiritual directions. Uh, there's some different forms of Christianity. Um, were you uh, struck by the way people were able to um, write about their spirituality in this context? Yes, uh, I think some were more comfortable than others exploring that side of the divide. Um, those who you know, openly and uh, without apology, practice these uh, traditions uh, and actually are leaders within those traditions. Uh, Grace Shearson, uh, Joanne Leslie, who's the archde who was the Archdeacon of the Episcopal Church in Los Angeles, Sabina Malioko, who is uh, um, a, a pagan priestess. Um, I had done some spiritual direction. I trained for three years. So uh, there are different... Um, approaches to the spirituality. Uh, we have a doctor who considers her practice uh, of medicine to be a spiritual practice as well. That this is her divine contract uh, to, to heal. And she went through a traditional learning and then became an integrative doctor. And she talks about this uh, transformation of herself and of her practice as a result, I think, of having undergone within her own family many, many tragedies. I mean, it is going to be one of the hardest essays to read, I think. Is this... Uh, is this um, Pastore. Yeah. Yes. Sacred Medicine, My Healing Revolution, exactly. Evolution. Yes. The and, then, and then Edvige Junta, who uh, combines being a an English professor in New Jersey with being a, uh, a yoga instructor. And she teaches memoir and just how that, uh, you know, kind of birthing of women writers and helping them find their voice and speak it you know, is, is, a, is, a, is a spiritual practice as well. Um, so all the different ways uh, our understanding of who we are and that our relationship with the divine uh, informs what we do in life, all the different in right. ways. You know, once you're grounded in that, it finds ways to express itself. You've described you you've described it as hoping that this collection will be part of an exciting new current of publications by women speaking their truth. Yes. Have you what other publications out there have you noticed that are in this vein? 
Well, um, not just publications, but in the culture more generally, people are just speaking out. They are speaking out their truth. I mean, you know, recently all of this stuff that is not surprising to us, but apparently is to many of the men in our lives of sexual assault and sexual harassment, that we live truths in our own private lives that rarely get any airtime or media time, that uh, we all need to do more of that. And we are. And social media is making that more easy, uh, easily done. So publication um, can take many forms. It, it isn't always in a book form. It, often it's in tweets and posts, Facebook posts, and that sort of thing. But I think many more women are being encouraged to um, to speak their truth and to have the courage to do that because we need to contribute to a, a changed culture for the next generation. It's so critical. It is the unfinished business of the 21st century, as Hillary Clinton has said. Right. You've described this book, I, you sort of describe it as a circle of women, but in a book form. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience of women's circles, uh, what, what they actually even are yeah. to people who aren't familiar with them? I can tell you about one in particular, which was called the Interfaith Beijing Circle that we had here in Westwood and were cut across faiths and was organized around um, the uh, UN De Millennium Development Goals and how they specifically um, uh, impacted women around the world and in our own backyards and uh, from the personal, from the, uh, the spiritual. And it, that was the most productive and wonderful group uh, that I've been part of. And actually this book, uh, we all just, we all had to figure out what, how we were going to respond, what we were going to do in our own lives. This book was one of my responses, actually. Uh, the other was to, um, to do a group spiritual director, uh, direction, uh, with, uh, homeless women veterans, which were, um, called New Directions, uh, really broken women, uh, who had experienced war. Uh, in different ways and were either recovering uh, drug addicts or just all of the horrible traumatic things that had happened to them and coming together to to be still, to reflect um, and to, it was called New Directions, literally about direction, right? Spiritual direction. It was kind of interesting. So this book, uh, this book is another circle and Jean Shinoda Bolin, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, wrote a book called The Millionth Circle. And what she says is that real change happens in small circles. One small circle will birth another and, and, and they will grow in an organic way. And one circle will be added to another until you reach the millionth circle. And then something radical shifts. And one thing, you know, something that you never thought would change suddenly does. Um, and that's what we're hoping for, you know, <laughs> radical change through these kinds. Yeah, here's of to that. Yeah. So. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. So, um, in the process of, of getting a publisher, was it problematic because of this combination of academic and spirituality and, and personal lives or how did that go? You obviously have a very strong publishing record, so you had, Plenty of publishers in your 
it wasn't enough to convince uh, certain publishers, but um, uh, John Alley at the University of Utah Press, with whom I've worked on three, two other books, this is my third with John, had faith in the project and was uh, the press was developing uh, a new area on women's studies and so he said yes. Uh, and I was thrilled, but it wasn't easy actually and had to go to various other presses uh, and then came back to John and, and John in Utah saw it through again, you know, and here it is. And we've already done some presentations and we'll do more. So hope, hopefully uh, this will be not just a publication, but a, a platform, a jumping off point to do something bigger. Uh, I really want to use this book um, in that way, you know. In fact, I, I think I'm going to buy it for a couple of my friends for Christmas because it seems perfect oh, for them. <laughs> Right. What kind of reaction have you had so far? And has how many men have reacted to it? I'm curious because it is it is women and it's it's it speaks to women, I think, very directly. But I'm but I think it could also speak to, to men or anyone really. Sure, sure, sure. Uh well we've I've I've done uh, four different panels in different settings with different contributors, and each time it's a little bit different. And um, you know, although most of the contributors are women. Uh, I mean, the audience uh, was women. Uh, there have been men whom didn't, I have not had specifically reactions from them. So I don't know how they're uh, going to react or have reacted or even going to read it. You know, are they even going to read it? But the women uh, in the audience were certainly uh, moved. And uh, uh, what I talked about when I presented you know, the kind of the overview was um, this book within the context of our uh, of our times, of our political, uh, socioeconomic and, uh, times and just how important it has become. It is it's it was important anyways. But now today, given our uh, what's happening in America, it's even more timely, I think, um, you know, we have we have. I don't even want to say his name, you know, the grabber in chief and uh, just this war on women. And it's no longer um, optional. It's no longer optional. Uh, we, I want to use this book in this way. Right. To make right. an impact. Well, I, <laughs> I have much faith that it will do. Um, and we've taken up quite a lot of your time now. Um, but before we've we finish. I wonder if you can tell us what you're working about on at the moment, if you're working on anything, because I know part of what you, you lay out in the book is that you have to step back a little bit from overproductivity. Yes, I am. Uh, that is exactly what I, I, you know, I go through these phases of action then retreat and contemplation, then back to action, always writing as I go along. And I think I'm entering a phase of retreating again. And, and I'm looking to really retreat. I mean, to go and be somewhere uh, away for a month or two and just do more thinking and, and, and reflecting and where am I going to go next? Um, I'm not going to be doing the usual academic publishing anymore. I don't think one of the projects that I am uh, been have been preparing for is, is a memoir that this was a, a you know, the, the segue should, be, should be a, a memoir. Uh, and that's what I want to do, but I do also oh, want to great. retreat. Um, yes. Well, that sounds like a fantastic 
thing, well, things to look forward to. And um, so I will let you go now. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, we really, well, I really enjoyed it. And um, I'm sure all the listeners will too. And, I'm very um, grateful, Rachel. Very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, have a lovely rest of day. Thank you. <laughs>